Hi, this is Dylan Bird, and this is the podcast edition of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly show that puts local issues in a global context, giving insight into our cities, rights, culture, democracy, energy, and the environment. The Grapevine is broadcast live on Triple R every Monday from 9am till midday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. For years, one Tamil family from the small Queensland town of Biloela were the human face of Australia's refugee policy. Priya, Nares and their kids, Tanika and Kopika, had their lives upended in 2018 when Australian Federal Police raided their home at dawn, beginning a process that would see them spend the next four years locked up in various detention centres and very nearly deported. The Labor government's decision to grant the family permanent visas in 2022 came after protracted legal battles and a huge grassroots campaign led by Biloela locals who went to extraordinary lengths to bring the family back to the regional community. And through it all, Priya and Nades themselves remained ever resilient, fighting for their children's future. This incredible story is told in a new book called Home to Bilawila. It's written by one of the people at the centre of all of this, Priya Nadesalingam, along with journalist Rebecca Holt. Last week, I had the great pleasure of speaking to both of them with Aaron providing translation, and I started by simply saying hello. Hello. Kia ora. And Priya, now you're back in Biloela, hopefully enjoying a much more peaceful life. Why did you want to write this book and tell your story? The reason why I wanted to write uh, this book was to let all Australians know about how refugees are mistreated. For the last 15 years, refugees have been uh, badly uh, uh, treated. I wanted to tell Australians what life in detention is like. That's why I wrote this book. And Rebecca, you'd been doing reporting from inside Australia's onshore detention centres for some time, and that's how you came across this family. Before we sort of get into your links with this family in particular, can you sort of tell us about your approach reporting on some of these facilities? Uh, yeah, I... I started going into onshore detention centres in Australia in 2016. Uh, I'm, I had an unexpected advantage, which is my birth name is not the same as the name that I publish my journalism under, which turned out to be extremely useful uh, because Australians, Border Force officials and Circo weren't looking for a middle-aged New Zealander in their visiting rooms. So... Uh, I didn't start reporting on the centres immediately once I got into them because I realised it would be better if I waited and learnt more and learnt how the, uh, who the providers were, how they behaved and solidified uh, the relationships with the people that wanted to uh, act as sources to me. And how did you first meet Priya and Nadez? The first time we met was actually over the phone uh, through another asylum seeker because they didn't get their phones given back to them for several months uh, while they were first in the Melbourne detention centre and uh, then we met in the visit room of the detention centre. Mm. And Priya, I mean, this book begins with the what sounds like an incredibly terrifying dawn raid in 2018. I mean... What was that experience like back then, if you feel comfortable talking about it? Did that come completely unexpectedly? I'm happy to uh, share my experience. It was a horrific experience, but I want everyone to know uh, what uh, we went through, how they um, uh, treated us. They uh, woke us up early uh, hours uh, in, in that morning. They took us in separate vans. They didn't treat us like humans. Uh, me and my husband did nothing wrong. We only came to seek asylum in this country. Our children were born in this country, yet we were treated like animals. Even today, my children don't want to go uh, on holidays. They don't want to go anywhere. They are 
still suffering because of their experiences in detention. They haven't recovered. Me and my husband, while it's very difficult, we can overcome. But my children, I am very worried about them. People following the media knew your story intimately, very closely. There were a huge campaign led by some people from Biloela. While you were in different detention centres over that time, how aware were you of the, the broader concern out there, particularly from people in the Australian community, about the conditions you were being subjected to and what the future might hold for you? When I was on Christmas Island, uh, I couldn't see what was happening uh, outside. Um, I couldn't follow, uh, but whenever there were actions, I would get information the next day uh, from supporters. I could see the love that the, the Australian people showed through um, uh, phone call uh, updates. And, and that gave me confidence that uh, I will get out one day. These people will ensure that I'm out in the community. And what about for you, Rebecca? You were reporting on a number of sort of, you know, different people's experiences in detention as you got to know Priya, Nadez, Tanika and Kopika a little bit more and, and almost I imagine it feels like you get swept up in the story as well. Can you talk about your experience reporting on this, particularly that, you know, very dramatic experience in 2019 right when the family looked like they were being deported? Yeah, it, it, it was an awful thing to see and it does affect you uh, even with that uh, overlay of the distance that you keep from yourself and your work at the best of times you can't go through something like that where you see little girls that you know very well screaming on a plane because they see their mother dragged past and being treated very aggressively physically uh, I must say that I became extremely concerned I was going to be reporting on the death of one of those children, of Priya's children, because their health concerns became so serious that when they were put on Christmas Island, I realised the isolation uh, was abject then. And so it became such a huge part of my life was just monitoring as best I could from that distance, any information I could get about health outcomes uh, because that seemed to be uh, the big risk area because their health uh, resources on Christmas Island are remedial at best and the islanders have to travel to the mainland for, you know, just to give birth. So I knew that we were, we were looking at uh, serious outcomes and, and, and that is what happened. Yeah. And as someone who had reported on Australia's refugee policy and the, you know, the human face of that, I suppose, for some time as well, I mean, engaging with this story, it, it just so much of it doesn't make sense. The fact there was a dawn raid, the fact the family was shipped off to, to Christmas Island in really deplorable conditions, that huge uh, uh, cost to the taxpayer, it must be said, as well. I mean, was this experience one that is unique or is that reflective of how the Australian government sort of treats other people whose visas might have expired in similar circumstances? A little bit from column A and a little bit from column B, actually, Dylan. The family's experience was not usual. There are plenty, if not thousands, of asylum seekers who are in the community and whose visas lapse and who are in touch with the uh, department, as Priya and Nadez were, doing the right things, applying for new visas, going through the right processes, not hiding from the department at all. Uh, and those thousands of asylum seekers are not picked up in dawn raids in tiny rural towns where they have jobs and are paying taxes. So yes, the family were absolutely targeted by the department. And in the course of reporting the book, I interviewed the mayor for Biloela, and he revealed that over six to eight months earlier, he'd been tipped off by an anonymous member of the public that they'd heard the family were at risk of being targeted and he'd been doing everything he could to avoid that. And Priya, I want to just sort of go to that 
moment when you arrived back in Biloela with your family. What was that experience like for you? It was a very happy moment when me and my family landed at the, the Biloela uh, airport. All my friends uh, we came to know uh, while we lived in uh, Biloela were waiting there to welcome us. Um, and that moment is still coming before my uh, eyes. Um, I can never forget that. Uh, it's like um, I found uh, the purpose uh, for my existence. Uh, I can never uh, forget that moment. Uh, my friends made sure that I was brought back to Bilavila and I'm always thankful for what they have done for me. And you write in the afterword to the book, Priya, that it, it is very hard to move on from that ordeal. You still bear physical and mental scars from your experience. You write that your shoulder is still damaged from your altercation with 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 guards as you fought against deportation in 2019. Yet you also write, and you said earlier, that it's your mission to fight for other families in detention and make sure that Australians are aware of what the government is doing in their name. Why do you see that as important? I have faced so many um, physical problems while I was in detention, and I continue to face them as a result of my uh, uh, detention experience. However, my family is in a safer situation than the, the rest of the refugees. You know, many of them came before me and after me. Uh, they continue to face uncertain future in this country. My best friend, Chandra, her son, who recently completed uh, year 12, has been told that he can't continue his studies further. It's so unfair that after completing 12 years of education, he's denied higher education because of his refugee status. For refugees like us, education is our hope to rebuild our lives. We're being denied that. I want all refugees to get permanent visa. I want all of them to live a normal life. Refugees can't just fight to survive. They need to be allowed to rebuild their lives. I do have problems, but I am in a safe situation now. I want others in similar situation to get certainty in their lives as well. This is why I'm using interviews like this, books, any other opportunities uh, to get these views uh, shared with wider Australians. I want um, I, I want to speak for these people through these interviews. Rebecca, in some ways, this is a feel-good story. It's also a really devastating story about the human cost of Australia's refugee policy. We're speaking in a context now where there have been laws rushed through following the, the ruling around indefinite detention of refugees in Australia. I mean, as a journalist, what are kind of the main issues that concern you at the moment and the ones that, that journalists and Australians should be really paying attention to in terms of Australia's refugee policy? Well, first of all, the Labor Party hasn't made it clear that they won't put uh, small children back in these centres and that would have been a no-brainer for them to have declared after the shame of what this family went through. And in fact, there is a 17-year-old on Nauru at the moment at the behest of the Australian government. So th the impetus is on the current minister to declare that. Secondarily, uh, there are unfortunately just some baked-in attitudes towards refugees in the Australian mindset and that's going to take a significant amount of time to dial back but I think we're on the pathway now when people like Priya are able to write a book and it's for sale uh, very widely. Absolutely. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you both, Priya and Rebecca, also ably assisted by Aram with translation. Thank you so much. The book is called Home to Bilawila, the story of the Tamil family that captured our hearts. It is very widely available, published through Alan and Unwin. Priya, one more time, thank you so much for being part of this.
And Rebecca, thank you so much as well for being involved. Thank you. Triple R. Last week, Victorian school teachers staged a week-long action in solidarity with Palestinians. The event came just after a separate action by school students with hundreds rallying in Melbourne CBD, calling for an end to the violence in Gaza and for Australia to stop its defence ties with Israel. So what's the role of our educational institutions in times such as this when there are community tensions and an escalating human rights crisis with thousands of children killed? Lucy and Farah are two teachers involved with the group Teachers and School Staff for Palestine, and I'm very pleased to be joined by them both now. Hello, how are you going? Hi, Dylan. And, Hi, um, Dylan. Hey, Farah, thanks for being there on the line. And um, Lucy, I'll start with you. I mean, so this action has been supported by two sub-branches of the Australian Education Union. How did it come about? Uh, it's it's uh, been supported by two regions, so that means they're big clusters of schools within um, the inner city region and the Maribyrnong region um, of the Australian Education Union. Um, and it came about because just ordinary teachers and school staff are feeling very, very distressed watching what's happening um, in Palestine, the um, extraordinary um, onslaught um, and, and obviously the mass killing of children um, and we came together um, to try and use our teacher voices, essentially. <laughs> um, teachers are very well-respected people um, in the community, in our, in our specific communities and, and generally across the public. Um, so when we speak up, people listen um, and it can act to influence public opinion and exert more pressure on the government. Um, and also because, you know, we were feeling that these conversations are happening in our classrooms with our students anyway and we needed to respond properly um, and responsibly to them. So uh, we thought, yeah, we should take a lead on this and, and say, you know, stop the genocide and stop Australia's support for the genocide. And, and what about for you, Farah? I mean, how did you get involved in this and, and what's been your role, I suppose, in, in the week of action? Um, to be honest, I, I think I found the group through a friend. So a friend added me into the group. Um, and since then, I've kind of just tried to, I guess, spread the word um, at my school. Before I found the group, I was kind of quite hesitant to do much. Like I was wearing like um, my kofia to work. Um, but I also just was a bit anxious about speaking about Palestine at work and everything. So I think for me, the main part was kind of just trying to have these conversations with my coworkers as well as um, others around me in that case. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if you can just step us through. I mean, for those who aren't teachers and involved in, in education, I mean, what are what generally the sensitivities around talking about these kinds of issues with, with students and speaking out? on them? What are kind of the codes of conduct that might sort of prevent you from doing so in some circumstances? Mm. It's a, it's a Is really... It for me or for Lucy? Sorry. <laughs> Let, let's start with Lucy and then you can chime in as well, Farah. Yeah. Well, this is hotly contested, I suppose, um, because, because we have such a strong voice. I guess there are a lot of parties that want to control that voice and, and, and make sure that they are in control of what we say in the classroom. So there's a code of conduct um, that you know, applies to the Victorian Public Service and teachers in particular that says that we can't bring schools into disrepute, we can't um, express bias um, towards students. Uh, and Ben Carroll, the Education Minister, and um, several principals have taken it upon themselves to interpret this as meaning that we cannot express um, a perspective of our own about contested political issues. Um, I don't think that they're right. I don't think there's ever an example of where they've been right. There are plenty of examples where they, um, you know, flagrantly do not adopt the same attitude. And rightly so. For example, you know, we are all encouraged to wear it purple. We're all encouraged to wear rainbow flags and um, things like that. Um, and in the curriculum, it's impossible to suggest that we're unbiased about particular things in our conduct with students. We, you know, we don't take the side of the bullies, for example. Um, so, you know, it's a mythology, I guess. Um, but one thing that the Code of Conduct does say, um, which I really appreciate about Victoria, is that we have to be actively leaders on human rights mm. and that's I think yeah. true um, true of what is expected of us true of what we expect of ourselves um, and I come back to that all the time you know 
when there is a genocide unfolding, it doesn't matter what our government says. In fact, when our government says that, you know, it's not a genocide, they're denying it, they're supporting arms trades with the with the um, oppressing country, that's the time when we must speak out. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, these, it's obviously, you know, there's a lot of sensitivities around this, but it, it feels like a very basic and fundamental thing to call out just abject sort of killing of children. You know, that, that is something that is absolutely wrong. I think everyone can can agree with that. But I sort of wonder about the role of our education in student in in trying to sort of make sure we don't retreat into our silos and that polarisation doesn't increase as a result of this. And I actually think schools provide can provide a, a really important um, kind of environment for having those those conversations in a constructive kind of a way. I mean, Farah, you are a, a global politics teacher and you teach humanities as well. I mean, this is an issue that it feels incredibly ripe for that kind of educative response. What's been your experience, I suppose, with, with starting to think about, you know, how to talk about this issue at the school you teach at? Um, I mean, generally, whenever I'm teaching any sort of issue, I think the most important thing, I, thing I, that I encourage my students to do is to think critically, right? And I will give them sort of like a precursor, like even what I'm saying, I want you to not take it for face value, right? Like you have to consider that I would be coming from a certain perspective, any media source would be coming from a certain perspective, um, and so when I've been, I haven't, like, taught this in too much depth, but when students have asked me questions, um, what I've tried to do is present a perspective that is factual, but that is also rooted in empathy, right, that's rooted in humanity as well, because people all often will say, oh, stick to the curriculum, but, like, intercultural capabilities and critical thinking skills are all part of the curriculum as well, even if it's not listed as, like, a very specific knowledge point. Um, so I have found that taking that approach and the approach of letting students discuss and make their own minds up has been really great because at the end of the day, it isn't my perspective that matters. It's the conclusion that they want to come to and the ability to have those discussions. And in any politics classroom, you'll have students with varying opinions. But I guess the point is to allow a safe space for that to happen. Yeah. And have students been really wanting to have those conversations? Um, yeah, look, I think especially in the first sort of month, um, it was coming up quite a lot, um, especially because some students are completely new to it, whereas others, you know, I've got Palestinian students, um, Muslim and Arab students as well who are quite invested in it as well. Um, so it has been coming up quite a lot. Yeah. And I mean, I understand that at your school, Farah, just to stick with you again for, for the moment, that you were issued with, with a directive that if anyone does ask about what's going on in, in Israel and Gaza to say that you don't really know much about it um, and that students should feel grateful to live in Australia. I mean, that seems like an interesting way to respond for someone who knows a lot about global politics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, I never responded in that way because I didn't think it was appropriate, to be honest. Um, I do think, though, like, after having conversations with leadership about that email um, post-publishing my article, I think it was generally aimed at teachers who didn't teach humanities or politics, from my understanding. Mm. Um, yeah, but I, I still don't think it was the appropriate directive definitely not yeah and i guess there's it's important for people to you know to be informed and to feel like they they have yeah. the ability to have these conversations as well about you know an issue that that has a lot of historical context and and can be a little bit overwhelming for those who sort of haven't done a lot of reading and and research yeah. into it um i was speaking with lucy and farah two teachers who have been involved in the teachers and school staff for palestine a group that um ran a week of action last week calling about the um the, the killing in gaza of course and also um, sort of what's been going on following Hamas' attack on October 7 and the broader persecution of, of Palestinians as well. And, I mean, Lucy, what's the, the, the role of, um, I suppose, education, do you think, in, in maybe even like inoculating students against mis- and disinformation when there is so much out there on social media that's not true? Um, what is the role of schools in, in making sure that students aren't kind of swept up in, in some of that stuff? Mm. Yeah, and not just social media. I mean, I think the media itself, um, you know, the mainstream media has been really disorientating um, in terms of, you know, presenting facts and then uh, wrapping it with analysis that kind of contradicts those facts over and over again. Um, so I think, yes, I mean, education is... Uh, in, for, for a, 
a lot of people, myself, and I'd say for everybody who's involved in teachers and school staff for Palestine and thousands beyond, education is so much more than getting good test scores, getting good jobs, you know, (laughs) churning kids through the system. It is about being, um, you know, fully alive to the world and being prepared and engaged and strong to engage with what's happening and make a difference. That's what it's about at its heart. And in moments like this, I mean, I've taught the Holocaust for so many years, for example. Um, You know, history is just full. The only reason, the only way you can get teenagers, for example, (laughs) to be invested in history is to say to them, like, this matters because this is going to be you soon. You are going to be in a situation where you need to think about what would you do in the situation of a Holocaust? What would you do in the situation of slavery? What is your role going to be when these crises fall upon you to act? And that's now. And I think children, young people, all of us actually want to have um, an opportunity, whether it's historical or current Um, you know current examples of you know what's happening in the world they need a place to talk these things through and it's a myth that teachers can inculcate students we can't you know we can't give them um, a brainwashing job it's just not possible (laughs) but we can give them space time information and influence um, to to be humane to be humanitarian and to be agents in this moment yeah, I remember going to anti-Iraq war protests in mm. you know, the early 2000s yeah. and being taken along you know, with my grandma and, and lots of my school students, um, fellow students at school as well. And it was this time, you know, as I was sort of coming of age, where you start to see yourself as a citizen of the world and that you mm. do have a voice in these issues. And then, you know, you do more research around it. And, of course, the, you know, the arguments for invading Iraq at the time didn't stack up then. They don't stack up now. So it did sort of provide a really important opportunity to think about, you know, what role we can play, but also to understand that historical context as well. And I think, you know, when we hear politicians say that students should stay in school, that's where learning happens, they shouldn't join these kinds of protests. I mean, we've seen the incredible um, kind of momentum that's built following this, the school strike for climate mm. action as well. I mean, in your experience, Farrell, what's it been like or how do you reflect on, I suppose, th- those kinds of sentiments about school being mm. for learning, anything outside of that sort of isn't a legitimate um, form of, of action? Well, I I think what I don't understand about those comments is, you know, a lot of people are like, kids should be in school just to read and write and do math, but it's not realistic to what the world actually requires of them once they leave school, for example. Like, I think Australia is a huge, like, civic literacy problem. Not a lot of people understand what they're voting for, who they're voting for, why they even vote. And I think for, the, like, the idea that learning should just be about, you know, things that don't relate to their real life is is obscure, right? Like, it doesn't really make sense to me because how else are they supposed to navigate the world outside of school? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And what, I mean, based on sort of people you, you, you've spoken to, other teachers and that kind of thing, I mean, how do they relate to this? Are there general sort of frustrations about not being able to wade into certain issues because they might be seen as too political? Maybe I'll go to, to you, Lucy. Mm. Um, I think when Ben Carroll went public and said that, you know, we don't have a... We we can't speak out about this issue, I think that inflamed many more people um, and sort of lit a fire amongst us because teachers really, really, you know... Where we don't like being told that this is something that we can't um, have a say about. Um, at the same time, I, it was threatening. It was a very threatening and heavy-handed um, response and it did chill, I think, a lot of people. Um, but over the course of the week of action... Um, there was there was a building momentum, I think, and a building sense of, you know what, um, you can say that, but we still have a responsibility to act almost more so. Like, what is it about the Victorian government? What is it about this issue that needs to be silenced so much? Um, and I think that really actually deepened teachers' sort of sense of um, fierceness about this issue. And we did get more people talking about it in staff rooms, talking about it in union meetings, taking action. Uh, and this week, continuing, there'll be teachers wearing the kefir, talking to students. I mean, it won't it won't stop. And we had the vigil last week as well where there were 200 teachers at State Library um, all kind of speaking together and listening to other Palestinian teachers' voices. 
um, yeah. Yeah. And Farah, I mean, you, you said earlier that, you know, you were initially a little bit maybe reluctant to talk about this or not knowing sort of how you, you could within mm-hmm. the school context. You've, you've written an article about it now and, you know, we're talking on, on radio um, about your, your connection mm-hmm. with this group. <laughs> I mean, where do you sit now in terms of, of talking about this within school and, and continuing the kinds of important conversations and, and education, I suppose, that, that you're highlighting as, as really important yeah. in these times? Um, I think at the moment my focus really is speaking to my coworkers and getting them to come along to events um, and like the rallies, for example, because like I won't necessarily input it into a, a random lesson if it's not relevant. But if, for example, like in my in one of my electives that I teach, um, we're looking at media disinformation and fake news. So we watched like a media watch um, video that around Palestine and what's going on at the moment. So I'm trying to incorporate it in kind of more, um, like, ways that still link to their learning. Obviously, if students do ask, I'm inclined to help them understand, um, given that it's, like, a relevant time as well. Um, But, yeah, I think at the moment it's more so just trying to do it in a way that's meaningful and not just sort of for the sake of, you know, yeah... Yeah, and hopefully, you know, teachers can be sort of trusted and empowered to, to do that as well, to sort of yeah. link it to learning, which I'm sure many many would, would be doing. Um, Lucy, what's what's next for for this group that's emerged? Um, I mean, are there more sort of actions planned? You had a vigil mm. last week. Where does it kind of go from here? Well, um, one of the things that we have been really urging is for our union, um, the Australian Education Union um, and the union movement more broadly to really champion this issue as a as a workers' issue. Um, and um, it, it has been heartening that the AEU has called for a ceasefire, for example, and they're also calling on members to participate in next Sunday's rallies, so that's on December 10. So hopefully there's a big, big block of union members who are all kind of saying... Actually, you know, whether you're a teacher or a nurse or an office worker or whatever you are, this this is you. You know, this is this is us as a as a collective. We're standing together, united to um, to stop our government support for these war crimes. So we're going to throw our weight behind that. Um, and there are just so many more um, ways we're going to um, talk about. Yeah, bu- building more um, beyond into into next year with forums and other activities. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I should flag that you know those. Classic sort of definition of war crime, something that's investigated, proven. But I absolutely know what you're saying there about all the the calls and and the um the what what the UN has said about you know the the process of what looks to be sort of genocide unfolding in there as well. I just want to sort of say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I mean, Farah, what what's your sort of level of engagement with this group going forward and and the sort of the school that you teach at? Um, I think that honestly, I'm on board with pretty much everything that Lucy's kind of said. I I also would like to try and get the union to be backing us further. Um, And I think, yeah, we're we're hoping to meet again soon to kind of come up with some more solid actions. But, yeah, I hope to stay involved in the same way. Yeah. It's been so great having your perspectives on air. Um, Really appreciate, you know, your your article that you've written on this um, that people can read in The Age, Farah, and also Lucy for talking us through this really important action. Um, Thanks so much for coming on Triple R. Thanks, Dylan. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Dylan. Triple R. The red carpet is laid out, champagne glasses are at the ready, and that can only mean one thing on the first Monday in December. That's right, it's time to announce the coveted Speak Holies. For the uninitiated, these are the best speeches of 2023, as judged by what I imagine is an anonymous panel of the most esteemed experts in the art of speech writing. Here to deliver the results is the man behind the Speak Holer website, author and speech-making enthusiast, Tony Wilson. Hello. Dylan, how are you? And we're here without, for the first time ever, Billy Crystal is not hosting <laughs> the Speak Ollies in the form of Kalia, who's, uh, I think we've done it so many years together, and, and you're flying solo, but you're doing it beautifully. That's right. Thank you, Tony. Thank you so much. I'm doing my best, um, but without my Billy Crystal offsider, things are a little bit tricky. So. That's it. Well, this is, I think it's the only awards ceremony on, oh, there might be some, there might be some party show awards ceremonies, but there aren't many. There's that, not, I think, is it, Dave Granny does the banana, is it like a banana lounge broadcasting award? I yeah, think? yeah, yeah. So, 
Dave Graney, who would be better dressed than both of us, I can say. <laughs> Always. Um, but it is an esteemed award. It is a very unilaterally determined award. And this year I'm even saying to people, uh, I actually just sat there for a few hours on Sunday. Anyone who can think of some better speeches this year that I'm missing, <laughs> I always like to update the database as well. So let's consider the Speak Ollies this year as a work in progress. So 2023, I mean, there's still time. Absolutely. So, They're yeah. going to keep coming. Um, I think I'm a little bit light on for issue-based speeches and maybe for younger speakers as well. Is so, that because there weren't as many good ones or no, just been harder to, to stay across It means them? I've been making a film and I haven't been, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been scouring the internet as well as I should be. But let's get on with them. Let's get on I with it. I have got some good ones. And this one was recommended to me by a fan of Speakola, mm-hmm. a subscriber to our newsletter and a man who is uh, – he even created a television show about great speeches. His name is Andrew Denton. Wow. And the speech he wanted to nominate for Speech of the Year was by Fran Drescher, mm. the nanny. The nanny. And I just looked her up on Wikipedia. Fran Drescher has been with us since Saturday Night Fever, 1977. Wow. She said, are you as good in bed as you are on the dance floor to John Travolta's <laughs> character? She was, of course, in Spinal Tap. With, uh, uh, she was the publicist in Spinal Tap. Um, anyway, And now a working class hero. She is. She's the president of the Screen Actors Guild. There's been a lot happening with SAG and the writers over there in the USA. And she stood up at a press conference and she just got going. And this is a person, you just realised, she has been on her feet since 1977. And she managed to find the words and the emotion to fit the mood of the era. And this isn't just a Labor speech, it's also a speech for AI and, and what's coming in the world. And, and I agreed with Andrew. I think it's one of the speeches of the year. Let's hear a bit of it. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in trouble. We are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines and big business. Who cares more about Wall Street than you and your family? Most of Americans don't have more than $500 in in an emergency. This is a very big deal, and it weighed heavy on us. But at some point, you have to say, no, we're not going to take this anymore. You people are crazy. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Privately, they all say, we're the center of the wheel. Everybody else tinkers around our artistry, but actions speak louder than words. And there was nothing there. It was insulting. So we came together in strength and solidarity and unity with the largest strike authorization vote in our union's history. And we made the hard decision that we tell you as we stand before you today, this is major, it's really serious, and it's going to impact every single person that is in labor. We are fortunate enough to be in a country right now that happens to be labor friendly, and yet we were facing opposition that was so labor unfriendly, so tone deaf to what we are saying. You cannot change the business model as much as it has changed and not expect the contract to change too. We're not going to keep doing incremental changes on a contract that no longer honors what is happening right now with this business model that was foisted upon us. What are we doing? Moving around furniture on the Titanic? It's crazy. So the jig is up, AMPTP. We stand tall. You have to wake up and smell the coffee. We are labor and we stand tall and we demand respect and to be honored for our contribution. You share the wealth because you cannot exist without us. Thank you. Quite remarkable. I mean, just raw emotion, passion. What makes that such a great speech? Well, I think she moved off notes for the second half and she's able to somehow summon those pauses. The combination of uh, the cracking voice, the voice, the nanny's yeah. voice, you know, like no one speaks like that. Yeah. And, and so the of, of, is it Queens? <laughs> I don't know, it's that sort of <laughs> yeah. accent. 
that New York Jewish accent that is just so striking. And she says coffee in it as well, which is great. Did she throw that in just for the fans? (laughs) (laughs) Greatest (laughs) hits. Clearly, many fans wanted a coffee and she gave us one. Um, Uh, That sort of made me think. I mean, it's, you know, it's about the AI and the risk it poses to us, you know, in a lot of different industries. Could AI ever sort of replace the art of speech writing, do you think? Well, I did do uh, a newsletter this year newsletter, news.speakola.com if you want to sign up to it. But I did a newsletter this year on Amica, which I think is the Amazon-created AI robot who delivered the equivalent of the King's Address. So mm. they, they said, here you go, AI, try and try and do the King's Address. And right. nailed it. Yeah, absolutely fine. When you're doing something sort of as, <laughs> something as dreary as that, you know, where you sort of know what the structure of it is, you have to yeah. talk about how, what a year it's been and what a year is coming up. I mean, AI is right for that, you know. But maybe not the most spectacular speech as judged by Speak Holder, or what do, what do you think? Well, I think that the, the things that make speeches beautiful are the little nuggets of personality. Mm. And so... When she says privately, they say we are the centre of the wheel. Is that mm, what she says? Yeah. You know, that's a little bit of imagery that I think AI would struggle at this stage yeah. to to grab. So there's sort of a poetry to how Fran Dresch is speaking in that. And she has quite a few of them. Um, and even this is crazy, you know, like crazy yeah. and, and the sort of like the, extre- the, 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 the extreme language, the, the hyperbole to some mm. extent. Um, and that, you know, you need people to do that. But maybe not. Maybe you just program, yeah. program AI <laughs> to, be, to be extreme. Hopefully yeah, not. Yeah. Um, so, um, but- another one we've got in here, someone who's known to you. Quite well. Oh, I have. Now, I reckon, so I was, I don't know if my order's right here, because I think this might be the speech of the year, mm. my favourite speech of 2023. So let's just have no, you know how rewards shows usually structure and they count down <laughs> to the winner. This could just be the winner. I'll tell you at the end because I want to hear them all again. Okay, yeah. But um, I love this speech. It's certainly the best eulogy I, I heard in a public setting this year. Um, with apologies to Ron Barassi Jr. He spoke really well at his dad's state funeral. But I thought this one was just outstanding. And it's John Safran, former Breakfaster, 2002. Uh, We dressed up in doctor's uniforms for the um, (laughs) promo photos for Radiothon that year. Uh, But John Safran gave the speech for Father Bob McGuire at the state funeral for him. And I just... it was. You know, typical Saffron. We're just talking before about what AI can't do. Mm-hmm. They can't find the 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 personality and the. It, this has both Father Bob's personality and John Saffron's uh, personality writ large across it. And and as always with John, there's kind of a an imaginative diversion. You know, he goes into a conversation to start. Yeah, let's listen to it. I'm with Father Bob over twenty years. I feel I can auto-generate an AI chat between him and me regarding today. Bob, you're dead. Do you want a state funeral? No. (laughs) Why not? Oh, I'm not sure about the state and the church colluding in matters spiritual. It worries me. I want a Tibetan sky burial where they take you up the mountain and you're eaten by the birds. Or I could push you out to sea on an iceberg. Oh yes, I'd like that. But Bob, a state funeral, because it's such a rare honour, will really annoy your enemies. So it'll be like... (laughs) So it'll be like, needless to say, I had the last laugh. And he'd go... Enticing, but still no. And then I'd say, You always said there's no you and me, there's only we. And the great we, all the people who loved you, need a chance to come together and say goodbye. And they're not going to fit on top of that mountain in Tibet. And he'd go, Oh, go on, have the state funeral, but no flags. <laughs> Bob was like a reverse Native American. He thought his soul would be taken away if a camera wasn't pointed at him. (laughs) But it wasn't because he was vain. It was because he felt such joy and he knew it provided others with such joy, grappling 
with the important questions of life in an irreverent way. A funny way of being serious, he would say. Now, while he might have been ambivalent about a state funeral, he was always interested, obsessed even, with gauging the success, or otherwise, of projects he was involved in, calling me to ask about podcast download numbers, overnight ratings, book sales, follow accounts. So Bob, you'll be delighted to know that the eulogy I tweeted about you was a blockbuster. <laughs> My biggest ever, 400,000 views, 12,000 likes. I'll read it to you, Bob. Upload it to the cloud that you're no doubt sitting on now. <laughs> what was Father Bob like privately? Somehow kinder and funnier than he was publicly. We somehow fought non-stop from the moment the record button was pressed in 2003 through documentaries, radio shows and books, right through to filming this year. But we never once fought. More than being kind in a broad brushstroke way, he was kind in small ways. When an elderly congregant couldn't catch the Collingwood matches, he organised tapes from Channel 7 that he would slip to her, along with the Eucharist wafer, during communion. <laughs> Bob was wise as Buddha. He attracted all manner of outcasts, not all pleasant, but he was always open-hearted to those people too. I asked him how he did this and he said, you don't have to like people to love them. When filming, it was an editor's nightmare to cut from the shot before I burst out laughing each time Bob finished a sentence. I never thought Bob would ever stop making me laugh, but with the sad news of his passing, he finally has. Thank you. Just a beautiful speech, isn't it? That's and hilarious. A, that's how it became his greatest hit. It is a beautiful... Because <laughs> he, he is good at heartfelt, and so many comedians are great at heartfelt. I was reading... It was actually... I know he's not really flavour of the month, maybe at Triple R, but I was reading John Cleese's eulogy for Graham Chapman because it was the speech anniversary of it yesterday. Mm. And that's just an incredibly beautiful friendship summed up in 1989 when Graham Chapman died. And you think... So comedians are good at this, like your comedy writers. You know, they're, they're, they're often versatile and undersold as talents. Yeah. Um, because they can often, when they go serious, it sort of often really hits you in the chest. And, yeah. And that life, you don't, you don't have to like someone to love them. You know, that's, that's a great line to remember from John's ear to remember that he said that and he can use that and it's it's perfect. It's a beautiful funeral. line. I remember reading that in the eulogy yeah. That, that, yeah, that I read in the monthly, I think it was, and it's such a great line that is, is funny as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, and that sums them both up, you know. It's, just, <laughs> it's great. What a, what a couple they are Absolutely. and were. And anyway, congratulations, John. I think it is going to win. He didn't put so, you up to that. It wasn't like, I mean, Andrew Denton gave you the friend Dresch one. This yeah. wasn't John Safran no, submitting his own no, speech, I, was it? Well, I actually <laughs> contacted John and asked him to send it to me because okay. I loved Excellent. So he sent me the transcript and he he inadvertently entered. He didn't know how much I loved it. <laughs> I um, mean, I don't know where you want to go next. They I, mentioned Collingwood yeah, and yeah, just let it be known. I didn't it. put you up to this. So, but... so the speech of the year in sport, the contenders were Ange Postacoglu's speech at Celtic was amazing. And these press conferences are just sailing. They're amazing. But there's... Um, there's one that comes to mind, and it is a Collingwood speech, and it's not by the inner circle. It's from the, it's, oh, I guess it's the middle circle. It's um, someone who is related to one of the Premiership stars, and it was Thank during you. the year, and it was, I think it was, was it Anzac Day, mm. Dylan? Yes, it so was. So it was a great speech delivered that day by Darcy Moore, um, uh, but I thought that was a more by the numbers speech. This is. Julie McCreary being called in to the club rooms before the Anzac Day game. Before the Mother's Day game. Mother's I think Day it was. game, yeah, yeah, of course yeah. it was. And that's why it was um, a mother's theme. <laughs> but she, she came in and she gave the boys a rev up. And she did it with such a sparkle in her eye and such sort of comic timing. And the boys enjoyed it so much that I thought this one could be the, the sporting speech of the year. And here we go. Bo McCreary's mum, Julie McCreary. To inspire you with my words... Trying to show things that will maybe lift you to another level, but I don't think I'm capable of that, so I'm going to get someone it is. Righto, boys! <laughs> First of all, I just wanted to thank you all so much for the hard work that you've done so far this season, going out there and doing what you do best, playing exciting footy <laughs> and winning. Yeah, you make us all so proud. And what a special day today in front of all of your beautiful mums and partners 
on Mother's Day. We're going to be out there. So go out there, make us proud. <laughs> Believe in yourselves. Believe in each other. Chase that bull. <laughs> Partly, I mean, the video is better because she's punching her hand and she's absolutely, um, she is in the middle of the G, isn't she, effectively eyeballing yeah. them. And you can see Bo McCreary just retreats so embarrassed. <laughs> like, I think he's kind of enjoying it, but he's like, oh, mum, what are you doing? But I, mean, I remember everyone watched that around the mid-year and there was a sense, oh, this is such a happy team, you know, and there's, there's a lot of, I think a lot of us who are, are born and bred hating Collingwood. Yes. Um, was saying, oh, I'm a bit worried how I'm thawing. A lot of people are going to work that out, how they feel about it. Yeah, yeah. They were unsettling feelings of warmth and and respect. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about it, to be honest. I've sort of got this persecution complex being a Collingwood fan. So anyway. Yeah. There's one, uh, this one I think you mentioned this is maybe your favourite and it's right in contention. Um, And it's great to have an Irish accent featuring at the Speak Ollies finally. But at the BAFTA Awards this year, there was a clear cut winner for the the most, I thought, the funniest. Um, and it's actually the most controversial as well because there was a section of it that was cut in the broadcast, the most um, controversial and critical part of the speech, from Siobhan McSweeney that didn't go to air and they claimed it was because of time. But it was okay, kind of, interesting. This is a woman who was criticising the government and the BBC. So maybe um, it was deliberately cut anyway. Her name, Siobhan McSweeney. You know her as Sister Michael in Dairy Girls. Fantastic what, what show. What a show that is. Yeah. And Sister Michael got up and received her BAFTA for, I think it was for Best Actor, does it say there? Uh, um, I think it was. Best Female Performance in a Comedy for Dairy Girls. That's right. Yeah. So here it is, 14th of May, 2023, Siobhan McSweeney, Arts. Oh, my God. Sorry. Hello. Um, right. So I've been warned to not do a political statement or to be, like, really, really boring or sad and stuff. So I'm going to start with a funny bit. As my mother lay dying in the Bon Secures <laughs> Hospital in Cork, one of the very last things she said to me was, would I not consider retraining as a teacher if she could see me now <laughs> getting a BAFTA for playing a teacher? Joke's on you, man! Oh, sugar, sugar, no, no, I, I, I'll never be up here again, damn it. Lisa McGee, thank you. Who knew that getting drunk and making each other laugh for decades would pay off? Thank you for giving me Sister Michael and not listening to me when I said I could play all the girls' parts. Thank you, BAFTA. <laughs> I wanted this so much. Thank you for giving it to me, especially considering the other nominations. Um, Channel 4, you have my devotion. Don't fire me. Hattrick, you're very clever for picking up this script. Well done. Liz Lewin, Caroline Leddy, Brian Faulkner, you're fantastic uh, producers. Thank you, our extraordinary crew. Clarky, I love you. Thank you for minding me. Mike Lennox, you're a brilliant director, my darling girls. Louise and Nicola, the whole lot of them. Peter, I love you all. Uh, to Kevin Brady, my agent and my pal for seeing everything all at a... <laughs> all at AHA talent to my chosen family and friends. I'm everything because of you. To the people of Cork who supported me, despite the fact I'm not Killian Murphy. <laughs> I know that has, that has been very difficult for you. To my brother, to my mother and father who aren't in here, but I'm going to be quick because it has to be to the people of Derry. Thank you for taking me into your hearts and your living rooms. I am daily impressed with how ye encompass the spirit of compromise and resilience despite the indignities, ignorance and stupidity of your so-called leaders in Dublin, Stormont and Westminster. There, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> in, the words, in the words of my beloved sister Michael, it's time they started to wise up. Thank you so much. What a speech. It's excellent, isn't it? What a woman. It still manages to make a political statement, even though it's so fun yeah, as well. Yeah, so fast. I talk about the gift of the gab. I mean, that's just so... Well, uh, it reminded me, was it... I don't know if it was this year, but Colin Farrell's speech at... Was it the Golden Globes or something? He talked about Banshees of Inner Sharon, and it was sort of similar. He tried to get through a lot of stuff, and the music starts, and he just keeps going, yeah. and then gives a shout-out to the donkey in that yeah, film. Yeah, and it's yeah. just, There's something about the Irish accent, so This I think. is what I need. I need... That's a good suggestion. I'll write it down. So people should be contacting me on... Um, 
um, at Speakola, submissions at speakola.com and the news.speakola.com website as well. And sign up. Tell me what speeches are the speeches of the year. I think Siobhan McSweeney's Trump's Colin Fowler's, I reckon, but it's a good one to check out. Yeah, okay. Then we go to politics. And this politics. one, it's, uh, there's been some great political speeches and, and um, I was just trying to think of the New South Wales election speeches got a little bit of press and everyone sent them to me but I found them a little bit boring they were very they, they, were, they were popular because they were very good to each other afterwards mm. um, you know Dominic Perrottet said very nice things about Chris Minns and they said it back it was all like what a atmosphere of, um, of decency pervaded that campaign which but is nice but maybe it is not nice but the speeches exciting. themselves were, didn't really <laughs> wake me up um, Biden is, you know, Biden, there isn't really one that stood out for me. But the one, there was this whole chapter. Do you remember earlier in the year, I think it was in about May, there was the Tennessee Three. Did you remember that? I remember this, so yeah. So three guys, or three men, I think it was, um, got kicked out of the Tennessee legislature because they, with inside the chamber, conducted a gun control Protests, mm. and so then the Republican-dominated chamber expelled these. There might be two members, and then one other person who was outside. They or, or expelled um, Justin Jones, uh, Justin Jones, and Justin Pearson from the Tennessee chamber. And so we got to meet, or I got to meet. I'd never heard of Justin Pearson before. But he is. Like, he, this is a guy who's done a lot of I have a dreaming at home. <laughs> so he, uh, he just has the voice and he's got He looks the, great as well, I've got to say. Yeah, and he's yeah. really young. Like he's 25 or something ridiculous. And so this this young politician is getting up and he's got a little bit of – he's even more Martin Luther King than Barack Obama, but certainly he's aiming for the stars when it comes yeah. to speech making. And here he goes. Yes, I tell you, it was a sad day on Saturday – All hope seemed to be lost. Representatives were thrown out of the state house. Democracy seemed to be at its end. Seemed like the NRA and gun lobbyists might win. But oh, that was good news for us. I don't know how long this Saturday in the state of Tennessee might last. But oh, we have good news, folks. We've got good news that Sunday always comes. Resurrection is a promise, and it is a prophecy. It's a prophecy that came out of the cotton fields. It's a prophecy that came out of the lynching tree. It's a prophecy that still lives in each and every one of us in order to make the state of Tennessee the place that it ought to be. And so I've still got hope because I know we are still here, and we will never quit. Huge. <laughs> he got it all in, pretty much. It yeah. felt like Sunday always comes. He was. I don't even know if he's trained as a preacher. Doesn't say there. I didn't read enough. He's of drawing from that lineage, isn't he? It yeah, feels like yeah. that's incredible. And I mean, that again just speaks to that history of speech making in the states, doesn't it? Like that they really draw on these traditions so often in, in politics and in public well, life. Well, definitely that that the preacher pulpit is yeah. a thing that we don't have as much. It'd be weird. And it actually would be sort of disarming. I think Australians would struggle if Penny Wong spoke like that. Like we wouldn't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We wouldn't like it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we'd go, come on, get your... Get your hand off it. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a tall poppy thing. Kind yeah, of, yeah. It? Like, come on. Like, but actually, yeah. the the over there, it feels like you know that they are more dramatic or something, or yeah, it's a different yeah. cultural tradition, and it's a more religious tradition, and they're more embracing of that. And yeah, mm. and um, and some speeches we like to soar, but they don't soar in that sort of religious way. That's right. Yeah, unless they're religious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wonder if we'll hear more from him. I feel like we we may. I think we may as well. Yeah, yeah. he was pretty brave as well with his stand, and they actually were re-elected in August. Those the the Tennessee three. Tennessee so three. They, the, in a Republican dominated state, the they were rewarded for taking their stand on gun control. Yeah, and guns as well. They often inspire great speeches yeah, like that's yeah. we've talked a lot about sort of speeches made in the wake of mass shootings in the past um that are very raw and emotional but but are kind of soaring as well yeah so there's tragic there's yeah there's always uh, me and motley gave another great one it was probably the climate change i just think she wins every year yeah um with what she's doing at the various cop um oh the other great climate speech was by peter khalil member for wills and that was great because i wrote it <laughs> 
<laughs> You're nominating but yourself, I right? I nominating myself, but you know, I didn't. Um, I didn't put it. It's not on speakerola. I should put it on speakerola, but it was an excellent speech that we worked on together. Was, right. Yeah. But um, maybe I'm just advertising my <laughs> yes. my prowess as a speech. Possibly writer. chuck it up there. And this one I didn't write, but man, I wish I had of. It's um, it's the last one we've got audio for yep. in the speakerolies for 2023. They all get a speak, Oli, these people. Oh, I should mention Vladimir Zelensky, his speech at the the one-year mark. Do you want to look for that? Is it there on I YouTube? I don't know if I'll be able to get He's that. a brilliant, um, as everyone knows, he was an actor. In fact, he's the voice of Paddington in, in, the, yeah. in the Ukrainian version of Paddington. But that theatrical training has meant that Vladimir Zelensky has a sort of sense of delivery and a sense of drama that I think is unparalleled in world politics. And, um, you know, and, and given he's also, I think, got righteous um, national defence on his side as well, uh, the combination of huge theatrical ability and a righteous cause has meant that a few of the best speeches of the last few years have been delivered by him. And on his address to the nation anniversary of invasion 2023, a year ago on this day, from the same place around seven in the morning, I appealed to you with a brief statement lasting only 67 seconds. Specificity, that always works in speech making. They covered two of the most important things both then and now, the fact that Russia started a full-scale war against us and the fact that we are strong, repetition. We are ready for anything. We will repeat. We will defeat everyone, rule of threes, because we are Ukraine. Uh, mad flag-waving and nationalism. Yeah. There you go. And he's, he's so you're, you're giving us an education in the art of speech writing there. That's so right. it's a repetition. It's, yeah. This is how it began. Tell a story. On February 24, 2022, the longest day of our lives, a metaphor, the most difficult day in our re- recent history, uh, Nafru, Naf- what's it called? Um, uh, 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 we, woke, we woke up early and haven't fallen asleep since that day. Nice. Uh, good work. Good. Yes. Thank you for doing a Vladimir Zelensky impersonation. And, but to finish off, and this one is just such a great speech. I'm trying to get him on the podcast, um, Speak Ola podcast. You can look it up. We've got 51 episodes now. And this is going to be a guest in, hopefully in 2024. I've Excellent. spoken to his agent. But Colin Hay received the Ted Albert Award this year at the APRA Awards, and that's a lifetime achievement type thing. And so he the, basically was asked to give a lifetime achievement type speech. It's quite a long speech. We're probably not going to play it all, are we? Just play the start Dylan? of it, maybe. Yeah, yeah the, the start of it. Or the start, sorry, where the, you so, said through. We'll do okay. that. Okay, yeah. so the, he starts this speech with an incredible story. You should go to YouTube and, and watch the whole speech because he tells this story of get, get it going on at the Olympics and yeah. how... No, now, like 20 seconds before they were playing in front of 2 billion people, no one had told them to go on and, and he just heard the previous act finishing and so men at work had to sprint. Anyway, it's, it's, fun. it's a great story. He tells it well. And, uh, but then he gets on to his life. He talks about the difficulty, I guess, of, of um, having a very hot career very young and then ha- having a, a creative life that follows. You still yeah. want to do the job you love. It's not going to be as, you know, roses and honey that he, that as the early 80s were for men at work. Yeah. But he has done this thing. He's created and it's, it's, a, it's beautiful. Um, and, and a familiar experience for a lot of artists who find success pretty early as well yeah. and then struggle with that sense of who they are and, and their output after them. Yeah, I thought it was one of the best um, sort of lifetime achievement type speeches I've heard. Let's hear a sample. I still have a place in the world. Most of all, I feel useful. And to me, that's an important thing to feel. My professional life involves three stages, writing songs, producing and recording them, and going on the road and playing for people. The rest of the time, I'm at home, perfecting my recipe for seared Brussels sprouts, a much maligned vegetable, which has seen, perhaps like myself, a welcome renaissance in popularity in recent times. Someone asked me the other day if I would recommend songwriting as a vocation. I answered them by saying, I started writing songs when I was 14 years old. I couldn't help it. Some 10 10 years later, I co-wrote Down Under. It took 40 minutes to write without a flute line. (laughs) And it has has sustained me for 40 years. But even if it hadn't, I still would be writing songs. 
I can't imagine doing anything more worthwhile after breakfast. So yes, I highly recommend it. So we might keep an ear out for the Speakholder podcast next year. Absolutely. Get him on to talk about... uh, Well, he's just a great talker. Anyone who's seen one of his shows knows that as great as the songs are, that the stage banter is almost unparalleled. So he's got the knack. And, um, yeah, certainly. And I want to give a special mention. that I I think John Sappham wins my gold speak, Ollie, for the the speech of the year. But the best speech I heard this year, it was actually a series of speeches, was the Carl Wilson Memorial. Um, which those speeches were asked to be kept in-house and, and I haven't made any request for any recordings of them, but I think the event was recorded. It was unbelievable. The quality of the eulogies was just beautiful. I'm thinking of Nellie Thomas's one made me cry. Um, Damien Callanan, one of her close friends, he's just one of my favourite eulogists and there is a Speak Ola podcast episode with Damien talking about humour in eulogies and... You know his speech. He opened up his his eulogy with, um, you know, we I hosted the family funeral yesterday, and you know now I'm here again today. I'm getting a bit sick of telling these stories, to be honest. So he went with <laughs> such a pressure on Camille. So he was anyway. She's hogging the attention, is what he went with. It was funny, and I'm not doing it justice, Damien. But the yeah that that event and the speeches at it would would win my speeches of the year nod yeah i can imagine and i mean those personal sort of intimate settings can be where some of the best speeches are made i think as well i was at a wedding last night and i did wonder whether i should record any any of the speeches or submit them but there were some great gags in there and some really lovely sentiments as well so that's a really great sort of forum for speech making yeah i know you need to move on and and need to to play the exit music on the speak (laughs) holies but but i will i will say um if anyone wants to send i've I've had some amazing speeches sent to me this year so especially eulogies i've had a father send the eulogy he delivered for his son and um you know these are really building the speakola uh, website i've got now over three thousand speeches there so that's speakola.com if you want the newsletter it's news.speakola.com if you want my writing newsletter good one wilson google good one wilson and you get me crapping on about me just as i did on breakfasters all those years ago that's that's where to find more of you thank you so much for coming in and delivering the speak always for 2023 we'll catch you again well this time next year not before in a new newly named show that's right future perfect is the name name. so future perfect coming to your ears next year indeed yes thanks tony thanks still thanks for listening to the podcast of the grapevine a weekly current affairs issues and culture program on triple r Grapevine is broadcast live on Triple R every Monday from 9am to midday. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au.